0: Today, we're going to be in Revelation 9. Now, the last time we finished the seal judgments and started the trumpet judgments, and today we're going to see probably one of the most bizarre passages in Scripture, really scary. If you don't know the Lord, or this is the first time that you've really been introduced to God's Word, uh, not all of God's Word is like this, but this is kind of scary, and it's really neat. And uh, it's almost... As we go through it, you can almost think of it as a movie, you know, um, and really use your imagination on this. Uh, So we're going to start with Revelation 9, uh, verse 1. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So the fifth trumpet sounds, and it talks about a fallen star. Now, we've seen the fallen stars, the meteorites. And at first glance, you might get that impression. However, personal pronouns are used. It says he opened, and it says to him was given. So this is not a literal star. This is a euphemism. Uh, many people believe it's Satan, and I think that there's good evidence to support that. Luke 10:18 says this. Jesus speaking, says to the disciples, and, to, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Isaiah 14 speaks about the great fall of Lucifer. And there's many other passages of scripture, even in Revelation, that we'll see uh, the fallen angels fall from, from grace, fall from heaven. Now, the bottomless pit, well, sort of what I was called as a teenager because people couldn't believe how much I could eat. And, and now that name we reserve for Dave because I've kind of slowed down a little bit. But really, the abusos is the bottomless pit. And it literally means without a bottom. It's a hellish place with no escape. I want to read to you Jude 1:6 and kind of build the case here. Jude 1:6. It says, "And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he the Lord has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day." We know in Luke 8:31 that uh, Jesus is confronted with a demon-possessed man and the demons actually speak to Jesus through the man. We are legion for we are many. And when they see Jesus, they're terrified because they know who he is. And they said, they begged him, they said, please do not send us into the the abyss to be tormented. Let us instead go into the pigs. So if you're going to choose pigs over the abyss, the abyss must be pretty bad. And in Genesis 6, we see uh, the interesting situation of the uh the sons of god uh sort of mating with the with the daughters of men and this sort of hybrid race kind of happening uh between i guess angelic and human beings and we'll cover that when we get into Genesis 6 so you see taking that all together it appears that some demonic entities roam the earth but others are so vile and destructive that they're incarcerated and only released at this point in time in history that we know is is yet future so this is sort of like the difference between committing a crime and being on probation versus committing a heinous crime and being in maximum security lockdown, such as Pelican Bay. These brutal demons come out and are allowed for a time to cause pain and suffering to those who aren't sealed. And there's words here. They were given. They were commanded. Even the demon's power is limited. If you look at the life of Job, Satan desired to destroy Job, but God allowed him limited power over Job to test Job and to build his faith, and to build his character, uh, and even for some reasons that we still may not know about. And God was very specific with Satan. In the beginning, he said, you can do these things, but don't touch his person. And Satan obeyed. And the second time, he said, you can afflict him, but don't kill him. So God set up parameters that the demons, there are just not allowed to cross, and they don't cross it. They don't cross that line, so to speak. Even in Peter, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but my prayer is that when you are done being sifted, that you return, right, that you don't fall away. Uh, So Hollywood kind of, you see these uh, maybe scary horror movies about demon possession, and it almost seems as if evil is just as strong as God, and it's not true. Evil has its time in the world. The Lord uses it at times, but eventually it'll be judged and destroyed, probably without the Lord lifting much of a finger. Okay, so understand that. Who has the seal of God? These people on the earth are to be tormented, but not the ones with the seal of God. Well, we talked about the 144,000. Remember the foundation we started to build with that? Interesting, if you have somebody knock on your door and say, hey, we're Christians, Jehovah Witnesses come into your house, and they say to you, we are the 144,000. That's their interpretation. The 144,000s are Jehovah Witnesses, and because there's several million Jehovah Witnesses in the world, uh, starting from I believe it was 1870 areas, the one hundred and forty four thousand Jehovah witnesses, according to them, have already died so here 's where they have problems with their theology now this what we 're reading today is a future event. okay Who are the ones sealed? jehovah witnesses one hundred and forty four thousand well here 's the problem they 're all dead. What is God going to resurrect them to put them on the earth to not harm them, then to go to heaven again? See, it becomes anachronistic. It's at a place in time. We have to build a strong foundation first. So the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, they're sealed, they're evangelists, and they're not going to be harmed in this particular judgment. He says, don't hurt those that are sealed. God never authored the destruction of his true believers. Now, you may say, and it would be good if you said this, but in the Old Testament, didn't the ground open up? Didn't some of the children of Israel get swallowed up in judgment? The answer is yes. Romans 9, 6, Paul says this, the apostle. He says, not all of Israel, not all Israel are of Israel. It's true. Even in the church today, when the rapture comes and the Lord comes for his people, and probably every church, there'll be some people, maybe some churches more than others, that they'll still be sitting in the pews because they really haven't truly given their hearts to the Lord. A title doesn't guarantee us anything. However, if we are really in Christ, this isn't for us. And I want to continue to make that case. There's some young people in the, in the, in the service today. This can be a little bit scary. But if you're in Christ and you've given heart, your heart to the Lord, you're going to be safe in His arms. This isn't for you. It's a choice that we make with our future. The locusts. Many would have understood locusts in those days, you know, it was an agrarian society. Uh, even in the times of the Roman, largely they had farms, right? And the locusts would come uh, five months out of the year and just ravage the crops. If you had the locusts come by, boy, you were in trouble. they just eat any type of vegetation and, and just make a mess of the place. But in Exodus 10, locusts were the eighth plague on, on uh, Egypt. And we're going to see through this, as we go through this, and we've shown, I've shown you this before, that a lot of these judgments uh, kind of there's an equivalent with the plagues of Egypt. Um, but Joel in chapter one, the old Testament prophet Joel in chapter one used locusts as an idiom. He spoke about the, 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 locusts that were coming. And then right after that, he speaks about Israel's enemies who were going to come and attack Israel. So he uses the word locust or locust as an idiom for Israel's enemy. And here it's the same thing because a few things, the description of true locust bugs, you know, animals, whatever that you want to call them, even crustaceans, right? Have exoskeletons. But either way, um, the little locusts uh, that we know of, uh, they don't harm people. They just destroy vegetation. They eat and eat and eat and eat in, in mass. Also, they don't have stingers. And there's a lot of other things that we're going to read about these locusts that really don't jibe with the locusts that we understand. Verse 5. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So in this fifth trumpet, it's the trumpet of inescapable torment that can't be quelled by death. Use your imagination here. Um, This is a situation where these things sting those that are not in Christ, that are not sealed by God. And it causes this torment for five months. Now, I'm going to guess that painkillers probably won't help you in this period of time. Um, I'm going to guess that you probably can't kill these things. And also, imagine trying to end the suffering. Men will, will look for death, and they, will, they won't be able to find it. Death will flee from them. Just to be a little graphic, you know, you just can't take the pain. You take out your gun and you put it to your head and pull the trigger, boom. And half your head is kind of hanging off, but you're still alive. It's really creepy. It's a, I don't really understand how it's going to happen, but... You're not going to be allowed to die in this torment. It kind of reminds me of those um, B-rated horror movies. You know, when I was younger, I used to watch those uh, kind of creepy things or, you know, the zombies and stuff. I don't know, but uh, it, it's very clear in the scripture. Torment, want to die, you can't die. It'll produce pain and fear from these attacks. Now, again, use your imagination. <laughs> You you turn on the channel and, you you know, you got your local newscaster saying, we've been overrun by these huge locusts and people are being stung and the camera pans to people screaming and trying to run from these things. The the police, the military are dispatched, tanks, whatever, you know, assault rifles trying to take these things down and it's not working. All I can say is I'm going to be very glad, Mark, me and you, we're not going to be on duty that day. That's awesome. (laughs) It's not my problem. (laughs) But... The truth is, again, nobody has to go through this. It's a choice. Rejecting God's way of salvation, you let time go long enough, you live long enough, this is the time period that you'll live in. I've even talked to my squad. It's funny, yesterday I was I was working and the guys asked me, so Joe, what are you preaching about tomorrow? I told them and they go, ooh, that doesn't sound good. I don't force it on them, but if they ask me, I tell them. (laughs) So it just opened up the little bit of lines of communication there. It was pretty good really gets people's attention. Verse 7. And the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were crowns of something like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates uh, breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions. And there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Now, here's a description of the creatures. You would think that just kind of reading it and getting an idea of what this is going to be like would cause people to run to God. Not necessarily. just want to describe it again. So they're shaped like locusts. If you're familiar with a the locust, they're odd-looking creatures with kind of a long abdomen and kind of like grasshopperish looking, right? Uh... The shape was like locusts, like horses prepared for battle. So somehow they're—I imagine that they're kind of large. They're not little. Um, and on their heads were crowns of something like gold. John's trying to describe it. It's kind of grotesque. He's doing the best he can. Uh, maybe they're—they're they're pointy, um, like crustacean-like, like crowns of gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. So now you're—you're you're getting into um, like almost mythology, like a hybrid or a centaur, half man, half animal. Okay. Uh, they had hair like women's hair, so, and they had teeth like lion's teeth. Pretty scary creatures. And they had breastplates, like the breastplates of iron. So in a sense, they're kind of mighty looking. Maybe they have like um, segregations and, and like, a, like, an, like an armor-looking uh, front to them. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. In John's day, the most feared piece of equipment was a war chariot. Right? A war chariot. You knew the war chariots come, and They were loud. They, they, they made a lot of noises. They would go across the land. And people would fear the war chariots. They would fear the, cal- the cavalry, you know, the horsemen. These guys were mighty. If they were good, they could just start slaying people as they're on their horses. So the sound of it to John is kind of probably frightening, but he also knows he's being protected by God as he's watching these things go out. So pretty scary. But here, the critique... the Creatures' grotesque appearance mirror their hearts, or their true intentions, or their fallen behavior. What would happen if that principle applied to people today? Now, we know today, in in our realm, okay, uh, we live in the terrestrial realm, man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. So, kind of the ugliness of some people's insides is covered by maybe pretty skin maybe nice, fine features. There's some people you look at, especially you open up a magazine. There's beautiful people all over magazines. And you can make a judgment by looking at those people, but you don't see their hearts, do you? The Bible says that God sees our hearts. We look at the outward appearance. We make judgments based on that. An ugly heart can be covered by physical beauty. Many enamored, uh, beautiful celebrities can cover greed, self-centeredness, pride, and other vices. Now, if you look at someone and tell me if this has happened to you before, someone introduces you to a person, you meet them, you shake their hands, and maybe there's nothing terribly striking about that person. In your mind, in your mind you say average. And then you start to talk to that person. And when they speak, they're, they're loving, they're other-centered, they're godly. And all of a sudden, tell me if this hasn't happened to you, you look at them differently, as if it's another person. They become more beautiful to you. Because now their persona, their, their soul, their heart starts to come out right? Or tell me if this has happened. You meet someone who's gorgeous, man, woman, forget about sexuality, just a a striking person that you meet. And then you start talking to them. And what comes out of their mouth is profanity, ugliness, self-centeredness, you know, meanness, mean-spiritedness. Don't you look at them different? And that attractiveness kind of in your mind starts to go away? Because now you're starting to see what their heart is. And Jesus says that you know, what, what, what's issues of the heart come out of the mouth. OK, and, and you can tell a lot about a person in your conversation with them. So the question is, I wonder how we all would look today if God said, snapped his fingers and said our beauty outwardly would based on our inward hearts. And I wonder, would we all want to take that challenge? <laughs> I see a lot of smirking. Ooh, that's a good question, because we can do a good job of hiding our hearts, can't we? Even as people of faith, we can carry our Bibles, we could smile when we get into the church, but nobody knows what's going on at home, right? So that's an interesting postulation. And in the end, I believe that, um, you know, when sin is removed, truly what we are and the beauty of our hearts will be revealed. Uh, we know that we'll have a new nature, we'll be perfected, there won't be any sin in heaven, and I believe that we'll probably even look different in the kingdom. It's just my, my guess. Verse 11 and they had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So who is this demon king? And again, some Bible scholars may say, well, they're actually little locusts. Well, Proverbs 30:27, in addition to the other things we spoke about, tells us that the locusts have no king. So why would God's word contradict itself? Again, I believe these are demonic entities. Um, fallen angels, um, probably the same one as in this demon king is probably the same one who opened the, the, uh, the abyss to let these things out. Again, I'm, I'm gonna say Satan, Lucifer is a good, a good guess here. The one who precipitated the fall of man in the first place. The one who now even takes more pleasure in destroying God's creation. It's a good case for Satan. Apollyon, Abaddon, literal interpretation means His name is exterminator or destroyer, even a greater case, more bricks in that foundation. Maybe another of Satan's names, as Christ has many names. Remember, Satan is the cheap imitation. We're going to see the the beast, um, the, the, the antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, the dragon. They all work together to mimic the trinity of perfection. We're going to see that the seal here, God's seal, Satan mimics with the mark of the beast, his seal. And why not? Satan has many names to glor, or excuse me, Christ has many names to glorify him, and Satan also has names too. The devil, slanderer, Satan, adversary, the lion, you know, the, the bad lion. So I believe that just as Christ has many names, just Satan has many names. Now, the preterist, let me explain the preterist. That's somebody who looks at the Bible and interprets the scripture based on prior events. The preterist may look at this, what you just read, what we've just read, and say, well, this doesn't have to do with demons, this has to do with the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire and some of the emperors believed that they were gods, they should be worshipped while on earth, and that they were reincarnations of the god Apollo, seems to fit. But this demon king, or this, this king, and these demons are too powerful for it to be a man. Even the Romans couldn't control certain areas of their empires. Even the Romans' um, influence was was limited, and they didn't last that long. Either way, this ultimately is the king of the world, this this demon king for those who reject Christ. And you could say, I just want to live my life peacefully. I'm not interested in God. I'm not interested in Satan. I don't want Jesus. Yeah, but by default... You either worship the one that God has provided, the King of the universe, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Or the worship is to the other side. There's there's no, I want to be left alone. I don't want to be bothered by both sides. You're either in one camp or you're in another camp. And in verse 12, if this isn't bad enough, two more woes are coming. Okay, Verse 13, then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So the sixth trumpet sounds, we go from the fifth to the sixth trumpet, we're moving progressively. Eventually we'll be, after the seventh trumpet, we'll be in the bowl or the vial judgments, right? Right. So the sixth trumpet sounds, and you go from bad to worse, torment to death. And you might say, well, to some it might have been a relief after those stingers. Well, if you're not in Christ and you die, the only thing that you could expect is everlasting torment. So you're not getting any break here by dying, you know what I'm saying? It's not a good thing. Now, these angels are waiting to destroy a third of mankind. If you do the mathematics, in the seal judgments, at the end of the seal judgments, a quarter, of the, a quarter of the population is gone, wiped out. Okay, so now, th- I guess, three quarters are left. Now, a third of the population is going to be wiped out. After these judgments, there's only going to be half the population left on the planet. So, now the speculation is, again, some would say, well, these are good angels bound at the Euphrates. Are they good or are they fallen? Are they demonic? I would say that they're demonic because God never binds his good angels. Even in the scripture, Jesus says it's the strong man. He needs to be bound before his goods can be plundered. A picture of Satan and his playground, which is the earth, and all those he controls. So good angels, I don't ever read in the scripture that they're bound and that they're let loose to to do destruction. Also, in Exodus 30, we see that this um, interesting uh, trumpet is happening at the golden altar with horns on it. Now, there's a distinction here. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 30, the golden altar with the horns were where, was where incense was burned, representing the prayers of the saints. The bronze altar, on the other hand, was where sacrifices were instituted. So we know the Bible says that everything in heaven, okay, it was made a copy, a lesser copy, on the earth under the Mosaic Covenant. So probably what this represents here is the incense and the prayers. Again, we've talked about this before. Uh, the, God's saints crying out, when will your will be done? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let it be so. So judgment is coming of sin, of rebellion, of idolatry. It's finally coming to pass. Now, in verse 14, we see these angels were bound at the river Euphrates. What's the significance? It's not just put there for no reason. The river Euphrates has a lot of significance. The first, it's the origin of mankind. If you look all the way back into Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden had four riverheads and one of them was the river Euphrates. Even modern anthropology anthropologists agree that the origin of life, according to these secular sources, started somewhere in the Northern Africa, Middle Eastern area. So even they agree with the scripture in that sense. Two, the river Euphrates was a border between God's influence and Babylon's influence, okay? It was, Babylon was the stronghold of false religion and demon worship always. And we're going to see the resurgence of Babylon as we get to the middle of this book. Three, the river Euphrates was supposed to be a natural border to the um, kingdom of the children of Israel's land that they never fully realized. And you can find that in Genesis 15:18. So there's a lot of significance here. And we're going to see the, the Euphrates again come into the picture later on in Revelation. Verse 16. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was two hundred million, and I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke of the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power, is in their, mouth, in, their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. Further revelation of these demonic beings, verse 17, fire, smoke, and brimstone, or sulfur, is usually emblematic of hellfire and God's judgment. We'll see more of this. Now, there is some confusion about uh, chapter 9. A lot of good Bible scholars disagree about the meaning of chapter nine. So I'm gonna to try to even give you some different points of view, and you, know, you could take with it what you like, but again, we always wanna get our opinions formulated based on the totality of scripture. Okay, The preterist, again, we'll look at this situation of these horsemen with the different colored uh, chest plates and the 200 million man army, right? Uh, the preterist, again, the person who looks at the Bible in, in terms of past uh, events will say this, that these are the Parthians, you know your history? The Parthians were pre-Iran. So even the Persians and the Parthians, uh, Iran's actually a very big country. Uh, so even back then, the Iranians were trouble and we can see that. They dwelled east of the Euphrates border and even the Romans couldn't control them. So if you read your history, you found that the Romans always feared those east of the Euphrates because they were unstable and they were unable to control them and they would often attack the Roman Empire. That's the preterist view. Others will say that, especially the first part, okay, with the horsemen and the, and the crowns and the long hair, and uh, others believe that, Bible scholars believe that this is Islam. This is where Islam conquered much of North Africa, uh, the Middle East, and really parts of Europe. If you lived in those days, you might say, these are the Mohammedans, this is Islam coming to take us and destroy us. Now, let me qualify that before you say, ah, oh, that's a little nutty. In or 732, there was the Battle of Tours, and this was stopped by a general uh, named Charles Martel. Okay, This was the, um- the Umayyad Empire. The Muslims came, and they actually looked to take over all of Europe. But the, in the Battle of Tours in 732, one decisive general stopped the Islamic invasion at a decisive Battle of Tours. Think about it. If that didn't happen, all of Europe and maybe we would be under Islamic control. So they were very aggressive when, when they got their strength and numbers. History bears that out. There's a second battle in 1683. It was the Battle of Vienna and the general was John Sobieski. He was a Polish general and he stopped the Islamic invasion under the Turks from taking over all of Europe. So this happened twice in history. And actually, if you go to England now and London and a lot of Europe, they're doing it surreptitiously. Uh, Islamic um, culture is really starting to invade Europe. Uh, they're buying up churches and turning them into mosques and they're doing it in a different way but a friend of mine is Muslim and he said that the world is divided up into Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Kufr and that means the house of Islam and the house of the infidels and the house of infidels needs to convert to Dar al-Islam otherwise they get the sword so you know this is the agenda of that belief system if you really follow the Quran and the Hadith and some of those uh, teachings but You know, I don't believe that it's the Islamic invasion. I I don't believe that. The third view is a futuristic or symbolic view, which says that these descriptions and the way the tails sting and the heads blow out sulfur and, and fire, the futurist says that this is a picture of modern weapons of war. They'll say, well, if you read this and the fluttering of the wings, you can get an Apache helicopter out of this. You can get a missile. You can get a tank, you know, in front and in back. A lot of different views. But the only thing with that is you'll have to symbolize this whole book. The whole chapter now has to be symbolized in light of modern weapons. I don't agree with that. Some will even say that the Parthians uh, had this um, method of warfare where they would attack and if they, would, they would try to feign that they were losing. And as they were retreating, They would shoot volleys of arrows and spears at their enemy as they were coming after them. So therefore, the head and the tail kind of thing. People will read anything into the scripture. I think that if you have to go really far out with the Bible, just accept God's word for what it is, all right? Because then you really run into problems. And then by the time the end of the book, you're confused. I believe that the Bible says what it is. It is what it is. I believe these are demonic hordes. But even if they are earthly armies, it shows that they're still controlled by de- demonic forces. So either way, demonic forces are at the heart of these these armies and these um, beings and creatures. I read you one scripture, Ephesians 6:12. Next time you're tempted to get mad at a coworker who makes fun of your faith, or you go to you know Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner and a relative has to chastise you and make fun of you because you're a Bible thumper. Before you go to get mad at that person, let me read this scripture to you because there's always something behind it. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So when there's somebody who's just coming at you and there's an anger and you start to talk about Jesus and you see their eyebrows furrow, there's a demonic force behind that person that's, that's trying to stop them and close their ears from hearing what you're saying lest they might be saved. So before you attempt to get mad at people, understand that there's always a, a, a force behind that. There's something that drives all of us. If we're in Christ, the Bible says we could either be in the flesh or we could be in the spirit, Right? We could allow ourselves to be driven by God, by the Holy Spirit, not quench the Spirit or squelch it. Or we could allow ourselves to let our our lusts control us. And we could allow Satan to entice us and give in to those things. The Bible says for Christians that if you're dealing with a temptation, that God will always provide a way out. So you don't fall into that temptation. He always does that. Or we could just say, you know what, I like that. I want to fall into that temptation. Who are you driven by? Are you driven by the Holy Spirit? or you're driven by the devil. Because even as a Christian, you can fall into his his temptations and he can shelve you. You can get into something so deep that he shelves you from, from, um, from serving the Lord and now you're kind of useless for a while. For a while, but it's not fun. A side note, what I find interesting about this is that the horses are really focused on even more than the riders. We talked about Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 6. Really cool picture of these spirit- uh, horses type spiritual beings on patrol throughout the earth, and then we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse these These incredible horses were, were holding these riders, and each horse had a different color representing a different judgment. Horses are a picture of swiftness and power in the scripture now i couldn 't find an opinion on what red, yellow, and blue represented. <laughs> I have a lot of, um, you know, sometimes I'll run into something where I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And I'll go into the commentary, and I looked under Chuck Misler. I looked under some of my favorite Bible teachers, and nobody would touch the colors. So, so I thought of the colors, and I was like, you know, Lord, what is it? So you're only going to hear this here, and probably for good reason. <laughs> okay, the colors. All I could think about was red, yellow, and blue. Isn't that the primary colors? And then I started to look up um, at Google the the primary colors. And what you have is subtractive primary colors and additive primary colors. How many people understand what I'm talking about, unless you're an artist? Wow, a lot of you, very good. Now subtractive primary colors are red, yellow, and blue, which are these colors. If you add them together, you get black. You get really the absence of light. Now you'd have to take, if you did an experiment, it doesn't always work with pigments, you'd actually have to take the, the wavelengths of light and blend them. Pretty wild. You take three colors, put them together, they make black. That's interesting. The additive primary colors are red, blue, and green. Not very different. You know if you add all three of those wavelengths, you would think you'd get a darker color? You actually get white light. You get light. It's clear. It's clarity. You know, you can see well. It's good for the organs of our eyes that God created us to be able to see those electromagnetic waves. What does the Bible say about God? It says God is light says God dwells in inapproachable light. It says in Revelation at the end that we won't need the sun or the moon to reflect the sun because the light of the Lord will give us light. That's pretty amazing. So you have a few things going on here. You have these colors. They are the subtractive primary colors. And if you bring them together, you get darkness. Isn't that neat? So even if, and I'm not going to speculate too much because maybe I should quit while I'm ahead. But I think that Just as the 666 and the mark of the beast and the, you know, the Satan's always fallen short and always trying to imitate God, but he's always second place or really a very, very gapped second place. Same thing here. You put these three colors together of these leaders of these horsemen and you blend those colors and it becomes darkness, spiritual darkness, the absence of light. So, you know, it is what it is. Either way, (laughs) this is going to be a scary time in history where the root of all the abject evil will be loosed on the earth, and it will be seen for what it is. See, sin precipitates this demonic oppression, because sin must be judged, but also the demons precipitate sin. It's like a vicious cycle, and we have to break that cycle. And the only way we can break that cycle is by accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, right? Because Satan, just like in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, he tempted Adam and Eve, He's still doing it with all of us. His hordes, they go out. The Bible says that there's even territorial demons that have a specific area of the world and they start you know, tormenting the people and tempting them. So demonic uh, hordes precipitate evil, but evil also precipitates them in the form of judgment. So it's a circle. Verse 20, last two verses. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's pretty sad. Let me read you another scripture, three verses, Old Testament, children of Israel, Israel, before, before the domination by their enemies came and uh, subjugated them and made them slaves. It says this, Second Chronicles 36, starting with 14, it says, moreover, all the leaders of the priests, the holy men, the ones who were supposed to be leading in spiritual righteousness, and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Isn't that sad? So sometimes we read the scripture, especially Revelation, and say, oh, I'm I'm a child of God, but I'm trying to rectify the judgment of God with a loving God. Listen, we bring this stuff on ourselves. Till there was no remedy. How long did he have to watch the Canaanites sacrifice their children as they were little babies alive to their burning uh, idols and, and put them in the arms of this false idol, uh, red molten hot, so the babies would fry to death while they beat the drums and everybody was drunk and on drugs? How long did God have to watch the Canaanites, you know, abuse children and uh, just do just these satanic practices, excuse me, before he judged them? How long does he have to look at our country? We've gotten a lot better at what we do now. Freedom of Choice Act is coming up. You better pray for your president that he doesn't sign it because now they're going to pump out more abortion mills. We don't have enough of them. With this act, there's going to be no restrictions on abortions. Partial birth abortions, no parental notification, nothing. Look it up. Pretty scary stuff. Millions of babies each year. What's the difference? You do it in Molech or you do it in the womb? What's the difference? We're just we just technologically savvy. We found a better way to do it. How long does God have to watch the perversions of our nation, the biggest exporters of pornography and importers and and even human slavery in this country? Who'd have have thought? It's money. You give somebody enough money, they'll sell out their own mother. It happens all the time. How long does God have to watch until... How long does God have to watch? And how long does the United States have to be in spiritual debauchery until there is no more remedy? I don't know. The Lord knows. But it's coming, I can tell you. But what's really said is with judgment, okay, or with free will comes incredible stubbornness, right? With free will comes incredible stubbornness. And grammatically, it doesn't say that these people were unable to repent, repent. It says that they made the choice not to repent. I believe in God's heart, there's always a hopeful expectation that his people will repent. Now you may say, well, that's silly. God knows the end from the beginning. Yeah, he does. But God sets us in motion. He sets us in motion with our free will and we can choose to choose Christ, to choose the way of salvation or reject it. And there's always a hopeful expectation that his children, like the prodigal, will come home to him. So let's break down some of these sins and then we'll we'll pretty much close it up here. Humans love their sins. They just do. Even Christians get caught up in this stuff. There's something for everyone. You know? If it's not sex, it's money. If it's not money, it's pride. Everybody's got, Satan's got their number. You understand? So humans love their sins. Idolatry. Idolatry is loving anything more than God. And if Christians aren't active, actively engaged in some of the big three, unfortunately, a lot of Christians are engaged in idolatry. They'll put anything before uh, reading, praying, Uh, doing devotions, teaching their kids. uh, There's always something that has to come up and has to come before God. Idolatry is a big one. Two, murder. Jesus said that even hatred fits into this category. Murder. Look what happened over in Mumbai. 200 killed uh, so far and 300 injured uh, pretty horrifically by 10 to 40 uh, terrorists, right? There's just some that have a bloodlust. If they're not blowing somebody up, if they're not blowing up a bus or a synagogue or, you know, blowing up a tower, blowing up innocent people, daycare center, they're not happy. Murder. They seethe. You know, they, they, just, it's, they just can't sleep unless they're plotting somebody's death. And it's got to be something big, big numbers. Sorcery. In the Greek, the word is pharmakia, where we get the word pharmacy from. Yes, drug and alcohol abuse is a sin. Is a sin. You know, in the Old Testament, but it says sorcery, but I just gave you the root word, okay? In the Old Testament, what would happen was, and even in the New Testament, Roman Empire, what they would do is, in order to worship another god, they would have to alter their mind to an altered state of consciousness. And what they would do is, whether it be opium, or magic mushrooms, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, cactus plant, you know, ooh, we'll take anything, just to Get high, get high, their mind is is flying. They're somewhere else, and they open themselves up for these to these demonic entities. If you look at any of the the major cults, look at the the hardcore cults, the real demonic worships, drugs are always a part of that, okay? Because it changes the it, it changes your brain, and it actually allows you to just kind of be uninhibited to receive whatever demonic entity is out there. So, uh, drugs, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and demonic worship they go together. You know, hand in hand, it's a marriage. Uh, Theft. Interesting that that's in here. Okay, theft has its roots in covetousness and laziness. Theft. I don't want to work for it, but I want it. Go steal it. Or covetousness. You know, my neighbors have something I don't have. That person has something I don't have. That's not fair. Theft. Covetousness. Okay, and covetousness is, is a pretty grievous sin too. Five. Sexual perversion. I don't even have to explain that. It's just so rampant in our society. Billboards, uh, car ads, circulars. I mean, it's just everywhere. You can't get away from it. We're bombarded with sexual images. It's all there. Sex inside of a marriage is wonderful. It's great, okay? But anything outside of God's parameters is a problem. It's a sin. And you see almost a race of the clock to continue to indulge in fleshly lust prior to judgment. And I've heard this from people. You know what? I'll worry about judgment when it happens. I'm having too much fun here. You know what? I could even respect that. It's foolish. Don't get me wrong. Because you're going to go to hell and it's not going to be fun. But at least the person's honest. Yeah, I'm I'm just going to get as much as I can here. And I'll worry about that later. Pray for that person. It's grievous. But at least they're honest about it. What a sad state of humanity. Even today, nothing's changed. Sin will promise us the world. But in the end, will just turn on us after it's used us and exhausted us and kicked us to the curb. So the question is, which king will you serve? The one that God has provided, Jesus Christ or Abaddon or the locust king or the king of the abyss? If you serve any other king than Christ, you choose the other one by default. And I've said that. And that's a hard task, master. The irony is all these false religions and these demonic entities and even Stephen, when he was up here, our missionary to Guatemala, and I talk to a lot of these missionaries, they go into these remote areas and they worship these, these demonic entities and molestation is a part of it, rape, perversions, drug use, and you know what? They worship them and worship them, hoping human sacrifice, remember he said that when he was up here? So it'll appease their God, and they don't even know if their God will be pleased with them until they die and meet them. That's awful. And here, these demons that people have been worshipping for so long, they can't wait to come out of the abyss and torment those who worship them. Think of the irony and, and insanity of that. Even if you look at Islam, um, you got your seven pillars or five pillars, depending what sect you're from. You can do jihad, and you still don't know if Allah will accept you until the end. It's pretty sad. But we have a God that loves us. He first died for us, And he promised us eternal life if we will receive him. Now is the time to receive him. Now is the day of salvation. And don't wait for this to happen to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven.